Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to LSE. For you who are here in the room, and hello to all of you who are following us on Zoom. Uh, This is a hybrid event which is hosted by LSE's Conflict, Justice and Peace platform and the sponsoring departments which are uh, from LSE, all of them, Department of International Relations, Department of Government, Department of International Development and European Institute. My name is Denisa Kostovicheva, I'm Associate Professor at the European Institute and currently co-chair of the Conflict, Justice and Peace at the LSE and I'm very glad uh, to see you tonight. Uh, What we're doing tonight, we're actually marking a long COVID-delayed launch of Conflict, Justice and Peace platform and uh, having a special occasion, the annual uh, lecture. Conflict, Justice and Peace platform is a web platform that uh, connects all researchers at the LSE who are working on issues that have to do with conflict, justice and peace. So if you'd like to find out more about the cutting edge research on these issues uh, that's taking place at the LSE, if you'd like to be uh, informed about the events before they happen, because previously the students would tell us, oh, I've just heard about this event, but it was yesterday. So what we do, we also disseminate information about all the events, so you're informed on time. We also disseminate all kinds of um, information, for example, blogs, comments, and policy papers by um, uh, scholars at LSE. So either check out our website or follow us on Twitter at LSECJP. So I'm expecting a number of followers to kind of go up a little bit after tonight. On this special occasion, I'm uh, delighted to be joined by the leading thinker of conflict and peace processes, Lark Zerich Sederman, Professor of International Conflict Research at ETH Zurich. Professor Sederman is a prolific writer on topics spanning ethnic conflict, nationalism, state formation, and peace building, and others. His academic articles have been published in leading journals in the field, and he's the author of acclaimed Emergent Actors in World Politics, which was published with Princeton, and most recently, he co-authored Power Sharing, Securing Peace with uh, Cambridge University Press. What distinguishes Professor Siedemann's work in the field is the combination of thoughtful engagement with big theories and computational modeling. And this combination has allowed him to provide evidence for big theories where evidence was previously lacking, or to challenge and refine what was previously accepted knowledge on issues on war and peace. Tonight, we look forward to hearing Professor Siderman's thoughts on uh, the Ukraine war, and he'll be reflecting on nationalism and geopolitics. I'm also delighted to introduce LSE's own Anna Gitzmanski. Anna is Associate Professor in International Relations Department here at LSE, and together uh, we are co-chairing the Conflict Justice and Peace Platform. 
Anna's main research areas are related to conflict and public, public opinion. She researches the consequences of political violence on voting and public attitudes, as well as the effects of technology on conflict and other areas such as crime. Anna's research as well has been published in leading journals in the field, such as Journal of Conflict Resolution, American Political Science Review, and others. Anna will offer remarks on Professor Siderman's lecture. Before we proceed, let's just welcome our speakers. Okay, so the way we'll proceed is Professor Siderman will speak for about 35 minutes. We'll, this will be followed with uh, Anna's comments and then we'll open it up for uh, questions. If you are uh, tweeting, uh, you can use the hashtag, which is hashtag LSECJP. Uh, so without further ado, Thank you so much for these flattering words, so welcome. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, now my screen disappeared. No, I, I guess we have some high tech going on here. So uh, I don't want to disappoint you because I'm not just going to talk about Ukraine. I'm going to be talking about some larger picture, but Ukraine is the starting point, as you will see, as you can see here. The friendly man who's waiting there is a Russian soldier. Uh, in the process of invading uh, Ukraine a bit more than a year ago. But what I will do also at the same time is that I'm going to tell you about some of the newest research results out of our ERC project with EU funding. Uh, so what we're trying to do here is exactly what was said, that we're trying to uh, build on the classics and uh, test some of the uh, theories and also rethink the way we uh, approach nationalism more broadly speaking. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine a year ago came as a, a rude shock to most observers in the West. Still, this was far from the first time that nationalism has caused surprise. In fact, since the French Revolution, nationalist upheavals have had a nasty habit to shock scholars and politicians uh, alike. Uh, despite increasing nationalist tension undermining Habsburg rule in 1848, Prince von Metternich ignored these signs and was promptly forced to resign. More than a century later, the collapse of the Soviet Union came as a huge surprise not only to Gorbachev, but also to most academic experts in the West and elsewhere because they paid little attention to uh, the country's ethno-nationalist Britishness. Why these repeated surprises? Is it because history is inherently chaotic? Or are analysts and practitioners simply using the wrong conceptual map? And what I will argue is the latter. 
It turns out that uh, most influential approaches to international politics failed to make sense of Russia's radical new revisionism since the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014. Yet the return of geopolitics is by no means limited to Russia. Contemporary examples include China's claims to reunify, as it were, Taiwan, Serbia's ambitions in the Balkans, and Turkey's Ottoman uh, nostalgia. Ever since its emergence in the uh, late 18th century, nationalism has profoundly transformed the state and continues to do so with massive repercussions for border change and conflict, both within and between states. In contrast, liberals have, had, have been slow to grasp the gradual shift from globalization to geopolitics, putting their faith in uh, optimistic scenarios of a peaceful and borderless world. From their welfare-oriented perspective, Putin's assault on Ukraine appears irrational and truly puzzling. While liberal scholars were right in their hope that the Western-dominated world order would secure peace among the world's leading powers, at least for the time being, this order has now come under pressure from both liberal, liberalism's internal and external uh, enemies. Realist scholars criticize liberals for being hopelessly naive about the power realities of world politics. While realists are keen analysts of geopolitics, they also tend to underestimate the subversive influence of nationalism because they view it as a force strengthening rather than weakening states' power within their given borders. Convinced that Putin maximizes Russian security by prioritizing defensive measures, realists expected Russia to refrain from moves beyond the annexation of Crimea, including Meshana, by the way. The main reason for the realists' underestimation of this type of revisionism, it would seem, is their downplaying of ideology and uh, nationalism's subversive border altering power. Putin clearly is not only concerned about NATO expansion, his geopolitical ambitions include the restoration of Russia's imperial grandeur. Because of their theoretical tunnel vision, realists thus risk being as surprised by events as Metternich was in 1848. So this is a better place to start. Uh, the French Revolution, which was the birth moment of modern nationalism, nationalism uh, national stipulates that this, the source of political legitimacy is the nation, usually defined, defined in ethnic terms. Nationalism introduced popular sovereignty that replaced territorial then di dynastic rule, and dynastic elites could no longer shuffle borders around to optimize stability through balance of power. It now mattered who lived where. Uh, so the essential idea here is the famous congruence principle, uh, the congruence between the state and the often ethnically defined nation. Gellner, by the way, taught here, so I'm honored to, to give a lecture here at the LSE. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I'm delighted to be here, but also humble. So what, what we have here is a consensus when it comes to how we approach nationalism in today's scholarship. And it's very much marked by a strong sense of constructivism, 
but also uh, modernism. And I will argue that although I agree with both in principle, uh, this has been overstated and actually may stand in the way uh, for a full understanding of the phenomenon. In any, any case, I don't agree with the people who think that we already know all the stuff. You know, the brilliant guys in the 1980s, they had come up with everything and we know about the definitions, the main stories. In fact, uh, Rogers Brubaker, a sociologist at the UCLA and uh, one of the world's <coughs> leading experts on nationalism, said in uh, 2020, uh, quote, the big historical questions and major answers to these questions had been staked out already in the 1980s, end quote. So I think that's a little bit premature. Let, let's have a look at some of these main principles and I would say that the uh, consensus, as it were, in the nationalism literature suffers from these four main problems. And these are problems that we try to address in the book that we're working on. So I'm doing a little bit uh, a plug for, for the upcoming book. Uh, but uh, it's important to bring these things together. These, uh, you need the whole book to explain everything. And I'm not going to be able to do justice to that in the remaining time. But anyway, the non-spatial theorizing problem is that <coughs> even though Gellner really talks about uh, the, the congruent story, which is about boundaries, uh, there is, he doesn't follow up on that in terms of the empirical research, and very few people have ever since. So the spatial story is important here. Uh, so we piggyback on some uh, work in geography there is also the methodological statism problem. This is that, uh, you know, if you have a uh, constructivist take on things, very often uh, the idea is that the state is able to shape uh, ethnic borders and assimilate. The, essentially, when we have a balance or a bias in favor of uh, right peopling over right sizing the state. And then uh, there is the problem of ahistorical modernism, uh, so uh, I will explain to you uh, a little bit more about this. This is that the strong sense of constructivism that we have in the literature leads to this idea that uh, when nationalism entered the picture, uh, there is a tabula rasa notion uh, that uh, essentially uh, the uh, leaders, the nationalist leaders can shape or reshape uh, the nation's past willy-nilly uh, through invention and uh, even obfuscation. And then uh, there is this problem of incomplete validation as an empirical researcher. I'm going to be a little bit boring here and, and just insist that we don't know those things that Brubaker was referring to. In fact, the, the, what the uh, great uh, thinkers in the 80s came up with is actually quite contradictory, or there is a lot, there are a number of questions that we definitely need to, uh, to answer. Here, I, I can't resist the temptation of showing these two figures. Uh, two of the greatest thinkers uh, happen to be, happen to teach here at the LSE also, which is even more suitable. I just arrived in this country as a lecturer in Oxford in uh, 1995, that's how old I am. And uh, then one of the first things I did was actually to drive up to Warwick to the famous debate. I didn't really want to miss this. And it was a very good thing because uh, Ernest Gellner passed away shortly after this. 
uh, debate in the fall of 1995, and uh, A.B. Smith was criticizing Gellner's uh, modernism. And uh, in, respect, in response, uh, Gellner uh, uh, blurted out that the nations, that, you know, of course, nations have legacies, but they are like navels, irrelevant. So it was a brilliant speech, and it inspired me very much. I was completely on his side. And then I started to think over the years, and I've to say, started to shift away, shifted a little bit closer to Anthony D. Smith's uh, story. But we don't have time to get into these details. That's just a little an anecdote to say that uh, to set the stage for the moves that we are making. I mean, instead of getting stuck in non-spatial theorizing, we introduce a spatial approach, uh, drawing on geographic ideas. We are also moving away from a, an exclusive focus on the state doing things and shaping ethnicity by looking at nation's impact on states. That is, this is the border altering aspect. Uh, and that is absolutely essential. Uh, on top of that, we are moving away from the a a historical notion of some kind of tabula, tabula rasa nationalism to uh, propose something that we call restorative nationalism. And then finally, we are uh, trying to make advances by using spatial temporal data uh, to study these phenomena. So the first aspect of this is the spatial approach, and this is to give you an idea of what we're trying to do. So we've collected all this map material, uh, historical ethnic maps from starting from the 19th century, which is when ethnic studies started as, as an academic discipline. And the black lines here, of course, are the state borders. And what you have here is a, a way to, to capture the very notion of congruence uh, in Gellner's sense. So if you define nationalism as the principle uh, that prescribes the state and the nation should coincide, this is now a way to look at this empirically with specific cases in, in mind. So that's, uh, to say, a, a starting point for uh, our study here. Uh, so by spatially interacting state and ethno-nationalist boundaries, we show how violations of Gellner's principle caused by foreign rule and division increase the risk of border change and conflict. And we arrive at the notion of territorial defined ethnonationalist segments, which serve as the main actors in our theory. The second point is to get away from methodological statism. And this is that we look at how the underlying ethnic landscape is going to push state borders in different directions, including affecting the size of states and the shape of states. And that is something that is understudied in, in the literature. We're not saying that we're the first ones to do this. I mean, there are countless studies of secessionism or unification or irredentism, but they are located in different studies, and we're trying to come up with a more unified way of studying these phenomena uh, with also unified data as well. And here is our take on national uh, to say restorative nationalism i mean we, we are arguing that you really have to take the nationalists seriously including what putin was saying that faithful uh in that faithful week of uh february uh last year but also in the speeches uh, preceding uh the uh the invasion 
So a historical modernism insists on the irrelevance of nations, pre-modern and recent past, and view empires as obsolete in an era of uh, nationalism. Yet as illustrated by Putin's justification of the war in Ukraine, nationalist narratives can have more serious consequences where they uh, partly re rely on historical facts, which are then framed and distorted to serve contemporary goals. And here I quote another nationalism scholar from uh, LSE, uh, and that was Eli Kuduri, who said that uh, making use of the past in order to subvert the present is essentially what nationalism often is about. And no doubt, Putin is in this game. I mean, he is an amateur historian. He would obviously flunk almost any serious seminar in history, but that doesn't matter because he has, he's selling his story, his narrative, uh, and it is, obviously, it's flawed in some respects, but there are, it's not completely invented, and we are really interested in the factual component of these stories uh, to see if they make a difference. And what we find is that many of these narratives and arguments advanced by nationalists would follow the same pattern. This is a three-step. First, you have the dark, the golden age. This is also piggybacking on A.D. Smith's uh, ideas. Uh, he, he's uh, quite famous for bringing in uh, sensitive studies of the golden age. In, and you see, obviously, in the case of Putin, Putin's Russia, Peter the Great was a fantastic period when uh, Russia was advancing and was being uh, respected. And then comes the dark age and the dissolution of the uh, USSR uh, was, uh, of course, a very hard blow. And then finally, the restoration, making my country great again, uh, is then going to be delivered by Putin. Uh, so that is the reason why uh, Russia is fighting in Ukraine to a very large extent. And then here is the picture of the way we're trying to synthesize and bring together uh, ethnic maps in order to create a uh, well-founded notion of uh, ethnic substrates that uh, we, we are using in our analysis. And I'm going to show you now a few uh, pictures. Here is the method, the way it's used in the case of the Hungarians, and it's based on many maps that, uh, so say, vote uh, and we are creating best guess shapes of these uh, entities, uh, and that's the basic basis here of the uh, ethnic data. I just wanted to show you this picture to give you a feeling for how the theory really works. Uh, so the upper uh, upstairs logic, the first line here is realpolitik, the state a la Tilly. Charles Tilly is actually, yeah, state borders, and then in among these borders you have, uh, or among these states, you have power differentials that would then uh, trigger uh, interstate war, which will in turn lead to border change, and you're back with uh, larger states, and I'll show you an example of this in a few moments. But what we're adding here is this other uh, level of analysis. So instead of just focusing on the difference, uh, so say violations of balanced power, we're really looking at this state-nation incongruence as a generator of conflict. Uh, so that's a parallel logic. This is very much simplified, of course, but you can see that 
uh, if you have a clash between the state borders and the ethnic boundaries, uh, you are going to have this triggered. This will change borders and could also drive ethno-nationalist conflict. So the first story here that I'm, I'm going to tell uh, is uh, essentially Tilly's uh, pre-nationalist story. So here we are starting with state borders and we're looking at how the discrepancies will uh, trigger war, which, is, which will then lead to uh, border change and larger states. This is the famous uh, uh, war-made states and states made war aphorism that Tilly, Charles Tilly, the famous his, uh, historical sociologist, coined. And uh, just to give you a feeling of this spatial approach that we're using here, here you see the borders uh, of Prussia with the red areas uh, uh, marking the areas that were expanded through warfare, and the green areas, those that were expanded through peaceful processes. And on the right, you see, as I say, over time, what, what, how the uh, Prussian state grew, and whether this was mo mostly driven by war or whether it was a Pacific process. And as you can see, Prussia was to a very large extent uh, expanded and grew in, in uh, a warlike fashion. And you can look at other states like this. And this is a way, our way of trying to be more precise about uh, Tilly's theory, and you have uh, the, the idea that state death becomes much more important for, uh, in warfare for small states. So we have a Darwinian process, process of winning, winning out the smaller states as Tilly uh, predicted. Uh, but this is controversial and this is being debated and, and we think that with this type of data you can actually reach some conclusions and with more precision. Now, now we're getting into the nationalism story here and, and we are looking at uh, the very notion of incongruence and to what extent this would change the, the size of states. And there is a uh, study that has been remained a puzzle, a result that is from Lake and O'Mahony's study in the Journal of Conflict Resolution from 2004, uh, where uh, they discovered that uh, state size uh, was going up in the 19th century until the late 19th century, and then they started to uh, go down. And we argue that it's nationalist stupid that's, that's driving this whole thing, and with the congruence data and the uh, spatial data, we are able to pinpoint these processes empirically. So here is an, just an example of a diagram that shows you these events in Europe uh, over time with the red ones standing for secession and uh, the green ones standing for unification, that is growing states, and the orange ones, irredentism, where you have a transfer of territory uh, according to nationalist principles, and the blue areas here, or the blue events, are uh, non-ethnic events. So based on this calculation, we can then show that you get precisely this growth of state size in Europe uh, in the 19th century, and then, uh, uh, so say, slide downward uh, into the 20th century. And this is a pattern that is also replicated to uh, a large extent uh, at the European level. Uh, I'm focusing mostly on European data here and in the talk. We have also in many of the chapters in many of our studies uh, global data, but it's much harder to uh, do research outside 
the European uh, cases uh, because of data limitations when it comes to the historical long trajectory, which is why we've put most of the focus on, on the European cases, but we are obviously very much interested in the rest of the world. What we will not do is to extrapolate from our European results uh, without doing careful empirical work and looking. I don't believe that ethnic nationalism, for instance, operates homogeneously across the world. There are huge differences from country to country. So we also uh, are playing around with statistical tools. Uh, Carl Müller-Crepon has taken the lead on, on a paper uh, where we're using something that's called probabilistic spatial uh, partition, uh, and we, where we essentially try to explain where borders are drawn. Uh, and here we don't have to presuppose that everything is about ethnic nationalism. We are letting, to so say, uh, the data speak, and we, we can feed in rivers, uh, mountain ranges, watersheds, etc., and see how important uh, ethnic divisions are. And lo and behold, at least within Europe, uh, the ethnic cleansing was, to say, the I shouldn't call it an, the ethnic sorting. And the rearrangement of the borders uh, have followed to a very large extent ethno-nationalist principles. And that's uh, a useful tool, but it takes quite a few cycles on our big computers at ETH, so it's not the easiest uh, technique. Now, we're getting into something that is directly relevant to the uh, story in Ukraine. And let me see, in terms of time, I have 10 minutes or something? Or okay, thank you. Uh, so, we are now looking at ethno-nationalist conflict as the outcome, and, and the whole study is very much focused on these uh, consequences of nationalism. Uh, here, this, you don't need to pay attention to the details here, but I've, I've taken, just to give an idea of how we try to classify different configurations. And you have on the left um, different types of violations in terms of uh, home rule, alien rule, or mixed. <coughs> Uh, situations and then unity and division. All these things are scandals to uh, nationalists. And in this particular case, we have pinpointed a type of situation that was spotted by Myron Wiener in the famous article from the 70s, the Macedonian syndrome, which is a combination where you have, uh, I mean, here the boxes stand for states and the gray area stand for uh, ethnic groups and the stars stand for capitals and the uh, arrows, red arrows, conflict, which are uh, either uh, civil conflict uh, or horizontally uh, interstate conflict. And what the literature is really bad at so far is to bring together both civil conflict and interstate conflict and how they interact. And we're trying to, to push beyond what Myron Wiener was interested in and generalize beyond the uh, cases of um, of, of uh, the Balkans. Now, one of the most important stories is indeed when we're trying to test restorative nationalism. And here we are looking at the Poles uh, as an example, just to give you an idea of how we can use the spatial temporal method to capture this notion that uh, the nationalists spot something in the past. Essentially, we're taking almost 1,000 years of state borders and try to have them explain two of the last 200 years of history in terms of conflict. And what we do here is 
that to take the example from the uh, the polls in uh, 1863, uh, the ABC stand for the segments, uh, and so the Russians inside Russia felt divided and occupied, uh, so they revolted. So this is, but it's not just that they were to say deprived of uh, unity and home rule, but it was also that they had had it better in the past. And the way we do that is that we go back, and that's the time scale at the bottom here. So if you're at time t, you will follow the nationalists' retrospective logic, look back, scan through all polities where these guys lived. And now the question is, can we find a polity where they had, where all the conditions of nationalists were satisfied? That is, did they have a better golden age at some point? So this is, now we can actually use the maps to identify this. And lo and behold, we find the Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth. For instance, that, uh, in 1620, it was at its peak. And here, you see the gray area, the Poles are mostly inside the, uh, that Commonwealth. That is, they were unified. And also, they were in control of the uh, polity, politically speaking. Uh, so that's uh, how we do this automatically, so say, with, through large, uh, uh, through uh, big data, essentially, uh, and we find a clear sign that states or nationalist, ethno-nationalist segments that have had control over a polity that, uh, so say, uh, allow them to get out of uh, the contemporary problems would want to go back to that, to that golden age. Uh, we are also testing uh, the theories of modernism um, uh, by using uh, railroad networks. So here we are, we have found uh, data by train spotters in France, train enthusiasts, uh, and we digitized, vectorized and uh, digitized the whole thing. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't cover uh, Britain or at least England. Uh, so uh, we had to drop the British Isles, uh, but uh, I guess this is an early case of Brexit uh, that we ha have to live with. But the, we have the rest of Europe, uh, and uh, what uh, stands out here is that if, if you look at these ethnic segments, and the question is, what would happen when the railroad hits that ethnic segment? Is this going to lead to uh, a backlash? Uh, in, in fact, a civil conflict challenging the, the power of the state, or is it going to pave the way for nice uh, integration? The bias of the literature has been mostly on the integration side. Yeah, I, I know if you've read Eugene Weber's fam famous book, Peasants into Frenchmen, that's a classic uh, study about France uh, and saying essentially that uh, modernization through railroads, but roads and many other ways, military service, schools, led to this nation-building success. But uh, with this data set we can actually show, and here is what you call the difference in difference research design, that's essentially just saying that if time zero in relative terms is the arrival of railroads for in the ethnic settlement area, then what comes before is essentially uh, a flat parallel trend 
and hell breaks loose as soon as the railroads come to town. Uh, and then, of course, you can do much more work on trying to figure out exactly why, but it shows you that you can actually, to so say, unpack some of the grand work, the grandiose work by uh, the experts on nation building uh, with uh, this type of data. So we have more work on uh, right peopling and, and I think cleansing, but also we're interested in partitioning and conflict, whether this really pays off, but I don't have time to uh, talk about that. I would like to sort of sum up uh, these uh, results and our approach. I, mean, I, I hope I've convinced you that uh, we can learn something from applying this special approach uh, to uh, nationalism. Uh, it's really critical to understand nationalism in spatial and geographic terms because in principle, nationalism is inherently territorial. Uh, so, and this comes from the fact that, that uh, nationalism is about wanting to have a state. That's what nationalists want. And guess what? The state is territorial by definition. So that's nationalism. Nations have to be territorial too. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense to talk about, again, this congruence principle in the first place. And uh, the second point here is that I've been trying to drive home the story that even though right people in the state and this ethnic engineering is, of course, possible and it has happened and should be studied, that there is there's an unfortunate bias in the literature that has taken the state as a unit of analysis because statistics come from states, four states, and uh, it's just the way we think very often. So this idea is instead saying, okay, let's start with the ethnic unit and see how it may smash, deflect, reshape uh, states. And that's what we've been trying to do in this project. Uh, and restorative nationalism, as I've said, this tells you that even though I'm a modernist myself, I, I don't think that there were nations in the Middle Ages. Nationalism as a social phenomenon, a political phenomenon, more or less uh, broke out and, and took hold as of the French Revolution. But that doesn't mean that the earlier ethnic history and trajectories are, in, 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 in a sense, irrelevant. So these navels can get really dangerous, uh, to use uh, Gellner's terminology here. As yet, we're not arguing that there is a clear line of continuity. What, what is important is what the nationalists have, how they conceive of the past, and they can construct a backward projected continuity to, say, the Croats, think that, oh, the people who lived in our area were Croats. Okay, there may have been dialectical uh, continuities and complications, but that doesn't matter to the nationalists. So we have to take the nationalists seriously in that sense. Even, and here is the important thing. Uh, we should not be afraid of, in analysis, to use this as data, just because we are putting in this data in our analysis of motivations and actions of nationalists doesn't mean we have to buy their ethno-nationalist package. But to ignore this and say, this is too dangerous, we, we shouldn't even be talking about ethnic nations, would deprive us of the key to their behavior, and that would be more dangerous 
uh, I would argue, we would then forever be surprised by the Putins of this world if we don't try to pin this down uh, empirically, objectively, as far as, as we can, we can uh, get. And then finally, that uh, you can actually study these phenomena with uh, spatial temporal data systematically. Now, of course, and I'm going to end now within one or two uh, minutes just to, to put in some caveats to show that I, I'm not a, uh, you know, one theory fits all maniac here who's trying to drive home one story. I mean, of course, uh, historical data uh, on ethnicity and borders beyond Europe would be necessary in order to make advances here. Uh, you can do some, but the situation is pretty spotty when it comes to the historical data on ethnicity, and we're, we're trying, of course, to improve the situation, uh, and there are many data sets for specific parts of the world, but it would be nice to be able to do more in a more systematic way. Uh, one of the most interesting conundrums is the interaction between the right peopling and the right sizing of state, uh, but that is a highly endogenous, highly complex story. Here we have privileged the right sizing side in our study. Uh, but uh, that's going to take uh, more theorizing and more empirical analysis to get right. We, we also think that the spatial approach should obviously be complemented with uh, text-based analysis, both qualitative and quantitative area studies and uh, a whole you know, traditional methods, historical methods. Uh, so we don't think there is only uh, one way to, uh, to study this phenomenon. And uh, you also need to go beyond structure and study uh, dynamic mobilization processes. Uh, and finally, uh, of course, what I've been saying here is, uh, doesn't mean that power sharing and deviations from nationalism would be powerless or uninteresting. I mean, in fact, as, as you mentioned, I just published a book on power sharing, which is, I think, by and large, the way you solve these problems. Uh, in some cases, some rare cases, perhaps partition uh, may have to be resorted to uh, the two-state solution between the uh, Palestinians and the Israelis being one example of that. But uh, by and large, I am not a nationalist myself. I don't think it's the solution. It's part of the problem. But we can do without nationalism in order to run democracy, uh, representative democracy. It's not like nationalism is only evil. This is a part of, the, of modern life. This is part of us. But we have to contain it. We have to, so say, channel it in peaceful directions, and that's going to be a tall order with people like Putin around. But uh, with that, I thank you for your attention. Thank you very much for your uh, lecture, Mr. Siderman. Um, um, I will try to offer some very brief comments and notes to uh, basically start the conversation and the Q&A. And I must say that uh, as I was listening to the lecture, my notes and comments have changed uh, quite significantly from what I prepared in advance, so I will try to be as clear as possible. So first of all, I really thank Professor Silverman for presenting this pioneering work here. Uh, it continues his previous groundbreaking research on how ethnic diversity leads to conflict through economic inequality, as well as how institutional power share, sharing arrangements can reduce conflict and lead to peace despite the existence of incompatibilities or um, disputes. Um, it's important to know um, 
that uh, his work is, not, is important not only for its substantive innovation, but also for its methodological rigor and uh, very uh, close attention to issues of measurement as well as causal uh, relationship, as we have seen uh, in the slides that uh, he presented. This is especially important if this work is to be a basis for public policy or recommendations to governments or international organizations. It's important that it's based on solid and uh, rigorous foundations, and uh, this is indeed the case uh, here. Um, so what's especially impressive and innovative in his work is that he moves away from abstract discussions about nationalism and identities and actually shows it to us on, on the map and shows how these things change uh, as a result of technological uh, infrastructural changes as well as wars. Um, um, I have basically uh, two, uh, two main comments, and if I may, um, I, can, I, I want to offer uh, my way of summarizing what I have learned from this current, um, from the talk that we have just uh, heard, as well as from the previous discussions that we had today. Um, so, uh, Professor Siderman basically talks about the dark side of nationalism, and how incompatibility between um, ethnic identities and borders can lead to conflicts, and uh, can lead to political violence among groups within states as well as between states. Uh, so this uh, obviously challenges uh, the prevalent liberal assertion that economic and technological progress will inevitably lead to a borderless world in which uh, uh, we all abandon our parochial identities and we all embrace uh, some global universal um, um, uh, identities instead. So Professor Siderman's work shows how modernization, especially uh, through that, for instance, uh, map of, uh, of railroads, uh, how modernization can actually spur uh, separatist and parochial identities and can reinforce them and can lead to conflict. So, so this is important to understand. Um, it's also important to note that this is not just historical research, but it has very uh, current implications and present implications. Especially going back to the story of railroads um, and how the in, uh, introduction of railroads uh, leads to conflict, many countries are currently embarking on modernization of their railroads, uh, partly as a way to uh, reduce the carbon footprint that is left uh, by other forms of uh, transportation. And therefore, it's really important to ask questions such as how these developments of uh, railroads can lead to changes in identities, can, lead, can reinforce some groups to make claims um, uh, against borders, and how these claims can give rise to violent conflict. However, it is also important to point out that most of the time, um, incompatibilities between identities and borders do not lead to conflict, let alone to violence. Uh, most minorities uh, coexist peacefully, especially in the context of the region that uh, we heard about. Uh, the case of Ukraine, as, um, um, as uh, tragic and uh, violent as it is, it's quite an outlier, especially in, this in the landscape of European politics. And uh, some of the reasons behind it might be um, democratization, the spread of uh, the ability to politically participate in life, um, um, as well as uh, economic growth and uh, reduction of inequalities. And as Professor Siderman's previous work shows, inequalities among minorities 
among, uh, sorry, inequality among uh, different ethnic groups sometimes leads to uh, ethnic conflict. But it's important really to remember that ethnic conflict, let alone violence, let alone civil war, as we are observing now, in, uh, in, uh, or interstate war, as we are observing now in Ukraine, is something that is uh, quite rare. Uh, and in most cases, uh, uh, this violence is avoided because it's very costly, it's very destructive, and politicians, groups, individuals, really have very strong incentives to try and resolve their, uh, um, um, their disputes peacefully. Um, I also want to make um, one last observation uh, about uh, the issue of frail roads and modernization. So, Professor Siderman, if, if I understand correctly, makes the claim that uh, nationalism might lead to conflict, and one way uh, nationalist claims uh, can be strengthened is because of introduction of railroads that allow mobilization, that allow communication, and uh, uh, in some cases they strengthen uh, separatist identities. Uh, I think it's important to examine uh, this mechanism also outside Europe, uh, because as we all know, uh, conflict in Europe is really rare. Uh, another region that I think is very relevant for this type of study is the Middle East. Uh, similarly to Europe, Middle East has also experienced an, an expansion of railroads in the, last 19th, in the late 19th century. In fact, the Ottoman Empire in its uh, last decades of its existence uh, has invested in construction of railroads that connect all the uh, different corners of the empire. Um, uh, trains from Istanbul to uh, Medina to Cairo to Baghdad and basically the entire region was connected and I'm sure many of you uh, read the um, book by Agatha Christie, uh, Murder on the Orient Express, uh, that really shows the multicultural um, universalist nature of the region in that uh, period that is very different from how the region looks now. Um, and so this actually is a sign that modernity can also lead to multiculturalism, can also lead to um, uh, cooperation, can also lead to exchanges and diversity that coexist peacefully. However, when the balance of power in the world changes and uh, universalist empires like the Ottoman Empire fall apart and in the Middle East, in place of the Ottoman Empire, we have the Sykes-Picot Agreement that basically randomly divided the land without much consideration for, for ethnicities, for uh, linguistic groups. And what we saw is that those borders, similarly to the, some, of the, some of the evidence that Professor Siderman presented us, uh, those borders have reinforced parochial identities. And uh, some of these identities actually turned against this modern infrastructure. And for instance, we saw how Bedouin tribes took apart uh, the uh, railroad that connected uh, Damascus and Hijaz because that railroad was basically uh, uh, prevented them from profiting from trafficking. And uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that conflict and modernity and identities can work in different ways. And the causal errors can run in different contexts in different directions. So uh, it can run from identity to conflict, but conflict can also shape identities uh, the way it uh, happened uh, in the Middle East. Uh, I think um, that said, it does not uh, in any way undermine from the great achievements of this work. Um, and um, basically I invite you all to, to, to engage by asking questions. Um, 
And also to remember that this work, despite its historical nature, is um, very much relevant for today, given um, uh, both the expansion, for instance, of uh, railroads to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and so the questions are how such global shifts of power that translate into a, a multinational um, um, infrastructure, how they can perhaps shape identities in a way that uh, lead to conflict, but perhaps also to peace and coexistence as it happens in many, many cases in most of the cases. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, we'll now start our Q&A, uh, inspired uh, both by the lecture and the comments. Um, what I'll do is I'll uh, collect the questions from the audience. Uh, I, we also have questions online. Uh, we have roving mics. Uh, please uh, introduce yourselves. So we'll take a few. So uh, first question there, then the second there. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Tell us your name and your affiliation, please, before you ask the question. Hi, yes. Um, well, my name is Daniel. I'm studying the Master in Political Economy of Europe of the European Institute. Um, I had a question about how applicable is this model in regions such as Latin America, where there wasn't a nation-state building process. Um, more taking into account that Ecuador and Bolivia, for example, are legally considered plurinational states. Thank you. Uh, yes, hello. My name is Derek Frost, Concerned Citizen. Um, I'm curious what metrics you use to measure the balance of power within a state between ethnic groups. Okay. And, uh, well, let's take two more. Okay. Hi, um, I'm Michelle Hughes. I'm a PhD candidate in law here at LSE. Uh, and I'm also a human rights lawyer, and I've practiced for several decades in conflict zones around the world. And one of the things I'd like to ask you to elaborate on with your model and your analysis or your methodology is the role of geography in that. You mentioned briefly waterways, mountain ranges, and so on. Um, I also happen to have a military background, and geography is destiny coming from that perspective. So where does that fit? in your mapping project here. Okay, and let's uh, do, there was, yes, and last question in this, in this set. Thank you. Uh, hello, my name is Jane. I studied anthropology here. Um, do you think it is possible that liberals, which may include many of us in this room under a very broad umbrella, um, are shying away from a future concerning um, ethnic boundaries because to acknowledge that they may be based in reality or in something, I'm not quite sure what ethnicity is, 
could have a contamination with concepts of racism. And I'd be very interested in your take on the, the relationship between could, could diversity and racism. Just, uh, it was a little bit difficult to hear you. Could you just uh, restate the, uh, the, the main essence okay. of, of, of your question? Because it was acoustically difficult to hear you. Um, well, please elaborate um, in whatever way you wish, but might liberals be afraid of acknowledging the reality of ethnic self-definition, whatever that might be, because it might have racist overtones, and please answer in whatever way is um, constructive. Mm -hmm. Marcel, do you want to give it a go? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I might as well start with, with that one. And of course, we, we are not uh, trying to say that uh, ethnic boundaries are frozen in time and that uh, they are objectively, existing objectively, but, but we are, at, in one part of our, analysis, we are essentially uh, trying to adopt the assumptions of the nationalists to see where they are going and where the conflict risks are the uh, largest. So in, in other words, we're not primordialists ourselves, but we, are, we adopt a perspective of participants' primordialism, which is a very important distinction. So if you go back to Clifford Gertz and Edward Shields, etc., they were actually saying precisely that that you can do that, but you have to be careful. You have to I introduce health warnings and say, okay, now we are not uh, talking about our own convictions. Now we're feeding our models with assumptions that have been made by Putin and other nationalists. So that is one very important aspect of, of this. Uh, but I think also that there is a tendency in the literature uh, including Rogers Brubaker and others, to overstate the extent to which ethnic boundaries are fluid. Uh, this is true in some areas and, and uh, absolutely pertinent, but at the same time, you can get pretty far during long periods where there is much more stability. Uh, so for analytical reasons, you can make these assumptions, but we also include in our project uh, parts of our analysis where we turn things around and where we look at how the ethnic borders or ethnic boundaries are affected by states in terms of ethnic cleansing, etc. So we're trying to, we're, we're fully on, on your side, but we think that for analytical reasons, you, you, if you're careful, you, you can actually make some progress on understanding why uh, nationalism can have very pernicious consequences. So, uh, more questions I got here, so let me see if I get this right. Uh, we had the, the, the question about geography and the geography being destiny, and that is essentially a, a view that is dismissed by most modern geographers today. There is nothing completely deterministic about geography. There is a, a link of uh, so, socioeconomic processes and human action intervening between the fixed, uh, fixed facts of geography and these social outcomes. So I, I'm, I think it's very important to be able then to feed into a model uh, both the ethnic boundaries, but also rivers and mountains, and see what difference these make. And what we can show is, of course, that geographic distinctions make a, a real 
difference for the shape of, of uh, states. There's no doubt about it. Uh, uh, I mean, after all, I, I live and work in Switzerland. But uh, at the same time, we can do that and weigh the input of those geographic factors together with uh, ethnicity. And we can show that the ethnic component is alive and well, even if you control for the input of geography. So I, we, we are, so say, we, we take geography very seriously, uh, and, uh, but it's not, so say, the only show in town. Um, then the point that was made here about, um, uh, let me see now, um, there was, uh, oh, Latin America was the first question. That's where uh, most of our results do not hold. Um, so that, that's a content that was to say configured historically in a very different way and, and then uh, I don't believe in the Creole uh, pioneers of, of Benedict Anderson at all. This was a state, this was a continent where the states were, the state lines were drawn based on uh, admin units uh, rather than uh, some kind of ethno-nationalist principles. So in that sense, I, I, I think there we have to be very, very modest and very careful. And we don't, we have some, for instance, in the study that looks at why you get borders drawn in certain places, the, the ethnicity story is useless in, in, that, uh, in that context. And then the second question, I'm, I'm trying to just the ethnic, uh, yes, how we measure uh, ethnic group. Oh yes, uh, the uh, essentially the power balance between the uh, ethnic groups, and we're trying to use very simple measures here, demographic uh, uh, measures, because we cover so much time. Uh, we cannot get into very precise measures based on military personnel and things like that. So we use the proxy of essentially demographic size. Okay, so uh, I'll now turn to our online audience. I uh, note the questions here. Um, so we have a question from uh, Matthew Partney, who asks, how does this model accommodate a sense of shared identity that is transnational but dresses as nationalism? Thinking, for example, far-right online communities or knowledge sharing between far-right parties in different countries. Then we have a question from Ji Li Huang, the year 12 student from Nottingham. Do you think that we will see an end to the concept of nations as we know it due to hyper-globalization? Then we have J.S. Uh, guest, LSE alumni. How do you protect and keep a culture without a language, a culture, and a border? And Omar Hamid is a postgraduate student from Newcastle University joining us. Um, Omar is asking, do you think supranational organizations amplify nationalist sentiments, much like the railways, and modernization of the past. Yeah, so, I, I, I'll try to, to do them in reverse order. Yeah. I, I, I think actually that's a, yes indeed. I, I do think that 
let's say, supranational integration can act as a trigger uh, in a very similar sense, but at the same time, it can also mitigate conflict. So I would say that Eastern Europe we would have probably had much more ethnonational conflict had it not been for the EU and the, to say, membership policies or incentives for those uh, countries. Uh, so Hungary would probably have been much more active uh, than it has been uh, had it not been for the EU, etc. So I, I think it, again, a bit like the railroads, it cuts both ways. And the real, the, the, the real question is to figure out under what conditions one or the other effect prevails. And that's what we're trying to do with empirical research. Uh, so I, I think it's a very good question. I, I sympathize with, with uh, this idea that uh, the EU could, in fact, uh, trigger conflict uh, under certain circumstances. But on balance, I would say I'm, I'm very much in favor of uh, supranational integration. Uh, on balance, I think it's, it's helpful. But uh, now, when it comes to uh, whether you could, say, uh, do without borders and keep uh, state going? Was that the idea? Or, um, it was. Uh, was the, well, the question uh, was whether nations can survive hyper globalization. Oh, yeah, but the, 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 the second point was about uh, whether you can survive. Uh, yeah, culture without language. Well, I, I, without I live in Switzerland, and, and some people think that uh, Switzerland is this fantastic four-language, multi-linguistic community, and that's, of course, a myth. Uh, it, basically, it means that the, the German speakers have been willing to learn enough French for the whole thing to hold together, and now we use English anyway. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm kidding a little bit. Uh, in fact, there are many Swiss Romans who speak excellent German too, and the Ticinese speak uh, pretty much all languages. Uh, but I think actually that Habermas has been referring to Switzerland as the model for Europe. Of course, if the Swiss can do it, everyone can do it. But it's difficult even in Switzerland. So I think that you cannot do without at least some kind of lingua franca, some kind of common uh, language in the end. But you can, have, you can build on bilingualism. You can get very far with, it, with this. And, uh, this the language I'm using right now is a proof of that. Um, so too bad that uh, uh, Britain left the EU, but uh, anyway. Uh, so uh, hyper-globalization, uh, um, uh, well, uh, I, I don't think uh, we are witnessing the imminent demise of nationalism. Absolutely not. Uh, I, I think actually that uh, I, I'm proud of having published an article in 2001 on nationalism and European integration where everyone was raving about the EU constitution that uh, then met a sticky end uh, only a few years later. Uh, so I, I think that there's been a lot of uh, hubris uh, concerning globalization and the picture I showed you, the photo with Bono and uh, Tony Blair, etc., what was meant to illustrate that in, in a somewhat um, you know, a cheeky way, but uh, I, I think actually that the, the reason why nationalism uh, will continue uh, to be powerful is that it's not just powerful in the sense that it can, to say, you can dominate with it, uh, but it's also, as I said toward the end of my lecture, is really part of our existence. We are, this is the most powerful ideology 
and it's mostly peaceful and it's immensely helpful when it comes to organizing representative democracies. Very difficult to do anything democratic uh, without nationalism. Uh, so I think it, it will be here uh, for a very long time. And a lot has to do, and there was another question here that was uh, put concerning the, uh, the, this idea of um, the context uh, whether uh, we would, the, the international context, and uh, whether there could be some kind of shared uh, far-right identity. I, I think that that question is interesting because ultimately, uh, I believe that the, the uh, fraternity of all these right-wing uh, activists and radicals will fail because nationalists at the end have diverging uh, goals, and as we've seen, uh, and it will end with tears. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm complacent. I actually think that we are witnessing right now one of the most scary periods uh, at all. If you think about what's going to happen in the US in uh, 2024, uh, if we have a return of uh, Donald Trump or uh, a Trump clone, DeSantis, etc. All bets are off. I mean, some people think that, okay, it's only a matter of time till the Russians lose in, in uh, Ukraine. But in reality, of course, it's all dependent on uh, military aid uh, coming from the West. And that could dry up uh, if you have a, a regime shift or regime changes, perhaps. Could even be a regime change in, in, uh, in Washington if democracy is dismantled as we know it. So this is dramatic and, and contingent, much too contingent for, uh, for, for, for my conflict. Uh, and so I, I think actually that the, the success of nationalism will be dependent also on the uh, normative environment, uh, the uh, normative context at the international level. And so much of what we've seen in terms of pacification of ethno-nationalism around the world, and I've researched this, is actually dependent on the influence of international organizations and norms. Uh, and this has been effective. It has really worked, and we have been able to put numbers on this and, and show this, but uh, this, the, the, our, our luck may be running out at some point. And I think the Trump years show that suddenly if the leader of the so-called free world is perf perfectly, the first place he visits is Saudi Arabia uh, with its human rights policy, which includes the use of bone saws, you know, then that, that is a very different story. And, and you need this pressure and these incentives on various leaders around the world, because otherwise it's, it's going to go south. Okay. Uh Thanks for this lecture, uh, uh, Raji. I'm an Alessi alum. Uh, two questions. Uh, first one is regarding does economic union or unity bring people together and potentially eliminate borders? Look at the EU, for example, look at the Mercosur in Latin America. Would that be a model that eventually would get people closer together given that they have common economic interests? Second question is, uh, I'm from the Middle East and also Lebanon specifically. Uh, used to be called the Switzerland of the Middle East. 
And there's a big you know, uh, debate about whether the Swiss model works because you know we had 15 years of civil uh, war. And also we have civil war in other countries in the region. Uh, look at Iraq, look at uh, Syria. Uh, there are a lot of ethnic groups, the Kurds, uh, the Sunnis, and you had ISIS as an, as an extreme example of, of uh, radical Sunni. Um, how would you, and also then you look at Israel, where you have the Palestinians and, 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 the, and, the, and the Israelis uh, fighting over a state. Um, how would you sort of find a solution for this? Does a confederation like Switzerland work? Does the confederation model like Switzerland for Lebanon, for example, work? Or a federation, a looser federation? Uh, how would you think that these kind of conflicts um, you know, would be resolved? Thank you. Thank you very much. Nationalism um, is just a tool to Sorry, which... Can you introduce? Sorry? Can you please introduce? My name is Dust, and I'm just a member of the public. Great. Uh, nationalism is just a tool to divide people, to create differences and say, your di my difference is greater than your differences, therefore it has purpose when I commit a genocide or some other horror. And the, in the Ukraine and Russia right now, it's just... Who's your favorite nationalist? I mean, it's very clear that the, the West has chosen Ukraine as their favorite nationalist. And all this can do is to feed into more division and more horror. And who comes away the winner? Not the nationalist, but the people that make the money. The borders are irrelevant. The nation is relevant. It's who gets murdered, which is the working class as a rule and they used nationalism purely to uh, foster a reason to wake up one morning and commit a horror. So, um, yeah, nationalism is fundamentally rooted in division and war, and with it, there can never be peace. Thank you. Hello. Uh, hi, my name is Michael Smailis. I'm an LSE alumni. Thank you for the talk so far. I'd like, to, I'd like for you to expand your thoughts on the railroads and the modernization, uh, seeing, asking specifically how much more in depth did you go, maybe qualitatively, uh, just because, say, I'm from Poland, uh, and looking at uh, 20th century Poland and Eastern Europe, the role of railroads built by, say, the Germans or the Soviets had not the purpose of modernization in mind, and whether that affects your conclusions on separatism, etc. Thank you. And there was a question there in this round. Yes? Let's go ahead. Uh, hello, good evening. Thank you very much. My name is Dianis. I wonder if you can uh, agree with what I'm about to say. Uh, sometime earlier on you showed a diagram, a, a peak of uh, nation states uh, unifying sometime in the 19th century, the latter part of the 19th century. And uh, basically what I want to say is um, sometime 17th, 18th century, we had the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, which gave rise to a burgeoning new economic and political system, which we commonly know we call capitalism. So basically what I wanted to say, if you agree with me, is um, the Germanic states, for example, that urge and rush to unify in 1871 the Italian states, which began about 1861 and finally they unified in 1871, it wasn't really 
an irredentist or a nationalist fervor, but it was more a practical way for the state to unify because uh, it was basically, we had a capitalist system in an ascendant phase and basically it was basically who's going to try and grab the, 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 the emerging economic markets, which subsequently led to the First World War. And it's the same thing, if you will also agree, it's the same thing which uh, the American Civil War, for example, it wasn't because the, um, the northern states, the Union states, were um, so much uh, embracing and uh, against slavery, but they're more, because they were more progressive in their, in their thinking than the, rather than the backwardness of the Confederate states. So thank you very much. I'll just include, uh, include one last question okay. uh, online because I'm mindful of the time, so we'll be wrapping up. Sure. So we have um, uh, Tyler Welby, year 12 student uh, from London. And Tyler is asking, is the current Western ideal that transcends a nation state doomed to fail and instead should uh, they, I suppose West, focus on developing nation states as defined by ethnic boundaries as to avoid separatist sentiments. Okay, okay I'll, I'll start with uh, that one. Uh, I, I would not uh, prescribe the ethnic solution here. Uh, that that if, if you turn this loose on sub-Saharan Africa, it would end with a massive bloodbath. So uh, I, I think that would be uh, irresponsible. Uh, in some cases, partition may have to be undertaken, but I think it should be avoided as much as possible. And I'm working, uh, trying to understand the conditions under which partition will be uh, called for and justified. The problem is that you cannot just look at these cases in isolation, because they could also spread, uh, so say, diffuse beyond the case in, in question. So they could undermine the very uh, integrity, the territorial integrity of existing states and turn the, uh, the international system into a shooting gallery. Uh, so I, I think I would be very, very cautious. I, I would uh, instead uh, go to uh, Leipart, uh, a political scientist who was pushing power sharing and uh, also federalism, um, autonomy. That would be my, my uh, my main answer in, in that case. So um, when it comes to the, uh, the influence of capitalism, I think it's obviously as, as we've been studying, for instance, the spread of railroads as a vector of modernization, there is a very powerful commercial uh, aspect to this. So there is no doubt that this is important, but it's not enough. I mean, the problem with, uh, with uh, so say, market-based, even Marxist analysis, is that the, the politics uh, gets, uh, so say, uh, underemphasized, and uh, I would generally think that, in, in that sense, Gellner was onto something when he said that, uh, that, that essentially, uh, it was the letter that was sent was not uh, sent by Marx, it wasn't received by classes but it, through a tragic uh, postal error, it uh, was the nations that received the letter. Uh, so I, I think, in, in other words, uh, the political and also symbolic emotional logic here, in many cases, trumps 
in, in, in some respects, the, the underlying commercial logic, but there are, of course, elites who have instrumentalized nationalism. I fully agree with that, ruthlessly, for extractive purposes, uh, including Putin, by the way. Uh, but ultimately, it's too simple to put all your money on money. Uh, that, that would be my simple answer to that. Uh, now, the question about the railroads in Poland, uh, fascinating, and then I, when we were looking at, at this, we had to read up on, on the reasons why railroads were built. And one of the most interesting things is that you could get into endogeneity. If you say that the extension of railroads leads to conflict, it could actually be that the railroad builders, the states, were anticipating trouble in the periphery and thus built railroads for that reason, and that would completely undermine our, our study. And in, in fact, if you look at, at Tsarist Russia, uh, these type of security considerations were paramount. Uh, so I take that fully seriously. We tried to get around this to, to uh, use some statistical gobbledygook here uh, through an instrument. Uh, Carl Müller Crepon, one of the co-authors on that paper, pioneered this idea of using simulations. He's, by the way, an, uh, a professor here at the LSE, former student of mine. Uh, so in any case, we try to, to say, simulate a counterfactual world where the railroads uh, would be built uh, according to an economic logic only. And our results hold with that instrument. So we think that the, the risk that this is all driven by the uh, nasty state leaders who are trying to knock down separatists uh, by uh, building railroads, uh, it doesn't seem to be driving our results. But it is, in, in specific cases, I would take that very seriously. Uh, and this is a great book I read uh, in, in German uh, by Schenk, a historian, uh, Russland's Fahrt in the Moderne, uh, which describes this absolutely beautifully with fascinating examples, extending to Ukraine also. There were some optimists who thought that uh, I can't recall now exactly what it was called, but Korf, he was called, one of the leading Russian uh, politicians who said that, oh, it would be, be absolutely wonderful. Finally, we can now unify these uh, peoples of brotherhood uh, together in one big happy family. Uh, and unfortunately, it didn't really turn out that way, but um, it was a nice try. Now, uh, when it comes to, I, I think there was another question about um, also, a little bit more along uh, materialist economic lines, whether this was driving uh, the whole process. Here, uh, first of all, I, I think th there is a, uh, it doesn't really matter in the end if the leaders are true believers themselves or whether they use nationalism for instrumental purposes. I mean, Bismarck. He wasn't a nationalist, but he used nationalism ruthlessly. Uh, and so in the end, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it, the result is the same. Uh, and however, when it comes to Putin, I, I actually do think that he is a true believer. Uh, he is committed to Russian grandeur. Uh, and that is part of the problem here, that, that it's not just that if he'd been more pragmatic about it, more instrumentalist, more ruthless in that sense, I think it would have been easier to bribe him into 
uh, a, a more happy outcome. But I'm quite worried that he's actually, he believes in, in the stuff he was studying during the COVID period and also was fed well b b before his COVID isolation. I mean, this is something that goes back uh, years, uh, these pernicious ideas. And it, the, the point about nationalism only being evil, uh, I, I think that would be a little bit too one-sided for me. I am fully aware of the terrible consequences of, of nationalism, and, and I think it should be uh, say, countered uh, and hemmed in, contained as much as possible, but I'm not, I don't think you can do away with it. Um, you have to somehow uh, domesticate it and control it and, and mitigate it uh, as much as possible. And then there was this interesting question about uh, the Middle East and Lebanon, and again there, I'm Somewhat, I think you can get somewhere where with economic incentives, uh, but as the European Union uh, shows, it's not enough. Uh, you know, if I think it was Lord Darendorf who said that when he was um, Commissioner for Education, it was a shame we didn't start with education. Uh, so there is an element of um, political identification. Uh, that cannot be reduced to economic incentives. And I think the EU is an organization that has run up against that constraint over and over again, but actually does go beyond uh, the economy to its own credit, uh, sometimes too far. And that's where, where I would say that uh, when it comes to finding solutions here, uh, first of all, I, I'm not an, an ardent EU Federalist, although I'm a member of the EU because I'm a Swedish citizen. Uh, but I, I think we, we, we need supranational structures, but they should be as thin, as you know, pragmatic, as flexible as possible, and not too intrusive, because we are then going to be feeding uh, the populists and the right-wing radicals uh, munition to uh, sink the whole endeavor. So, the, the, the real, I, I've been thinking about how to move forward with world peace, and at some point, if I get uh, the time, I would like to, to follow up on Immanuel Kant, who was writing about, uh, you know, the uh, perpetual peace uh, story, and, and to, to uh, an astonishing extent, that vision has actually been vindicated. And he didn't even factor in nationalism. So uh, it was based on democracy, on the constitutional principles of the late 18th century. Uh, and I think one should redo uh, Kant uh, and his peace process while factoring in nationalism and see how, uh, how we could somehow rescue the planet uh, based on that more sophisticated understanding of, of nationalism. But on the question about uh, whether, what, whether we should turn Lebanon into uh, a, a Switzerland again, uh, yes, I think it would be wonderful, but the conditions are obviously very, very different. I think it's, again, to talk in terms of Kant, I mean, there was this categorical imperative where he's saying, if it's possible, you are obliged to work for world peace. If it's possible, if you can imagine a state like Switzerland, where ethnic communities live next to each other peacefully, uh, then it should damn well be possible to do that pretty much anywhere on the planet in principle. And we are obliged to do whatever we can to turn that into a reality. 
and that would be my, my rather unhelpful normative take on, on that. But I, I think I should that my, my, the bottom line is that power sharing is possible in more cases than we think. And the, part of the reason why power sharing has got a bad name is that it's, it's endogenous. People don't realize. I mean, it's a bit like the hospital. If, if you think that uh, the risk of dying is very high in hospitals, uh, because of that, you shouldn't go to a hospital. Uh, that's the correlational approach that people take to power sharing. They say, okay, power sharing, trouble. Yeah, but, but you know, people that don't go to hospitals randomly, they are really sick when they go there. And by the same token, this, the countries that really get into the, uh, this effort of setting up power sharing uh, arrangements uh, are really in trouble to begin with. So if you factor in that type of reverse causation, you will actually see the power sharing is much better than its reputation. And that's what I would put my money on. I would also want to, at some point, say a couple of words of response, but there may be other questions. So we're I running out of time. We have to finish. Yes, okay. So maybe we'll leave that for later. Yes, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk. Thank you so much for your thoughtful comments. Thank you. So, much. Thank yeah. you. so I just want to thank you for taking us from the dark side of nationalism and I, I really liked uh, sort of uh, ending on the note of Kant and perpetual peace. Um, what I will take from this is that we uh, have to be really aware of the dangers of nationalism and sort of mobilizing ethnicity but really be careful about nurturing uh, multi-ethnicity where, where we have it, precisely because it's so easily uh, uh, sort of used uh, for conflict. Thank you very much uh, for your lecture. Thank you to our audience. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.